0: Race
1: doesn't limit you from anything. All about I feel like, like they this. learn about very, race very from? I'll, I yeah, teach you them what you're you fired about, race about who are you right? are with somebody and else that looks you like you. And love who you are. To, to love their racial themselves. identity. Thank you, In My Skin listeners, for joining us once again. I'm your host, Medina Jackson, Director of Engagement for the Pride Program, bringing you part two of my conversation with mother daughter duo, Dr. Aisha White, Director of the Pride Program, and writer, social justice educator, and Milken Family Foundation Teacher of the Year Award winner for the state of Pennsylvania, Jamila Rice. Enjoy. What are um, a few tips, if you want to say your top three or so, um, you'd offer educators and parents or caregivers in talking about race, racism, and social justice with their youth?
0: Yeah, so I'll start if you don't mind, Jamila. Um, And um, again, full disclosure, this is not anything new. It's something that I actually practice in my professional development sessions And what I've come to is um, trying to help educators and parents understand that it's important that you look at these conversations that you have with children in three different ways or or from three different angles. The first is being proactive. What are some things that you can do to begin to have conversations with them before they um, experience misunderstandings or before they have negative experiences? And so finding ways to begin that conversation even before a problem kind of emerges, either at home or at school. And then the second, obviously, is how can you be responsive in ways that are helpful, useful, educational for children. So thinking about in advance how you might respond if your child says something that's racist, or if your child says something that represents them being racialized. So thinking about, you know, how to Take a deep breath, make sure you don't show any kind of emotion, and engage in a conversation with them about this, just like any other conversation you would have, so that they understand this is normal for us to be having this conversation. And then, thirdly, is reflective. And I'd say, thirdly, um, but Reflective does not come last. Reflective comes first. So the first thing you need to do is reflect on your own racialized experiences, your racial history, your racial narrative, so that you are more aware of your own ideas, experiences, and how you respond to things. And then on top of that, when you do that, you actually have some foundation for starting that conversation with your child or with your student. So those are the three tips that I would give
1: beautiful you can only uh talk about what you've thought about read about and reflected on yourself right right Jamila how about you actually I mean I, th- I think
2: that what um mom share applies to teaching as well most definitely especially that third one that that be reflective being number one um because you can't go into this without being cognizant of that. You don't know what your triggers might be, or um, you don't want to do harm while you're doing this. And I know that that's one of the reasons why so many teachers avoid uh, addressing anything that they feel is being controversial or um, related to um, race and racism or, you know, calling out white supremacy because they don't have the words or lived experiences or the research or anything behind it to be able to be factual and not emotional when they are um, engaging in those things with students. Um, And being proactive connects to teaching because that means that you have to plan. Mm -hmm. So everything that I've described that in no way involved me just walking into a classroom, opening up a book and turning a page to say, this is what we're gonna be doing today and answer the questions at the back of the <laughs> chapter, right? You know, so you have to be proactive by planning, by anticipating what possible problems might occur or questions might students have um, that might be related to race and the history of race um related to that. But then also being proactive um, leads into that being responsive. Like, well, how will you respond if you don't know the answers? Mm-hmm. You know, so instead of just ignoring it, you know, or coming up with something in the spot because you feel that as an adult or as a teacher, you should know all the answers. Um, you know, you just need to think about how you're going to respond to things that you don't have an answer for. Um, But that you could say, you know, um, maybe that's something that we could look into a little bit more throughout this unit of study. You know, that's a really good question. So it's really another way of going back to what we talked about earlier in this, which is um, being open to um, students providing that feedback and making those connections and asking questions that drive the learning, because that's what real authentic learning is. You know, it's questions that that drive the learning, and then you learn more, and then you ask more questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like full disclosure, that's one of the reasons why I used the the documentary that I used um, during that unit on the war on drugs is because the whole structure of the documentary was it was so meta, because the Documentary was structured based on one question that the the director had or the creator had, and he was also the narrator. And then as he learned more things, then he shared more questions that he had, you know, in, in the um, narration. And so that's another thing that we discussed, like, how did he do this? So we discussed the content, but we also discussed the method. And like, what, what happened when he did it that way? And how could you do something similar with a question that you have that you would like to investigate and get more um, information about, you know, so it's really mimicking that research process.
1: Right. And I, I, uh, I always try to think about, you know, in learning spaces, how, you know, being the educator or the grown-up in the space um, and with your students, how you're really co-creating the, mm-hmm. the learning, co-creating the community, co-creating the environment and how as you know adults, we might have that um, internalized pressure of perfectionism or feeling like we have to know everything when we can't possibly know everything and it's okay to say I'm not sure I like the language that you use Jamila like you know I'm not sure right now or that's something that we can look into as we continue on in this unit and your students may be able to put you up on game and you know have some some have some knowledge and information that they may exactly be able to share with you and we can't be afraid of that. hmm so I've got a couple questions to wrap us up. Um, what are you most proud of in the work you do and what is some of the positive impact you've seen or experienced? Uh, we'll start with Dr. White for that one.
0: Um, so I'll start with the second question first because I was thinking about uh, this question and um, I'll first preface my answer by saying that sometimes it's not easy for us as a program to actually see the positive impact that we're making because people will read the Pride's uh, report, get really excited, implement things, and we have no idea who they are, where they are, or what they're doing, so there's probably people who are doing things that we don't know much about. But I will say that there are some things we are pretty much um, aware of. So one example might be the Children's Museum of Pittsburgh. Where we did a training there. And um, since our training, they'd have, they've had some struggles around race and um, um, equity at their institution, but they reached out to us again for more training. So what that tells me is that while uh, we, I've probably planted seeds. Um, People are willing to come back to us for more learning and more education and more uh, practical advice. So that's something that I see as a positive impact. But I also see um, tangible things. So for example, early on, we partnered with the Carnegie Library to come up with a series of um, bookmarks that they created Uh, directly in response to the prior report and their interest in what the prior program was doing. So that's really tangible. And since then, they've also incorporated content in a conference that they started presenting. Um, I believe it's going to be happening annually. Um, They've incorporated content around race. So I was part of that. But what I'm seeing is people who are at these institutions who we early on identified as providing good service, but evading race, now I'm providing good service and starting to incorporate conversations about race and content about race. And I would add um, trying together as um, another really good example of that since we've been working with them for going on almost two years with professional development as well as other things that they're doing so that they can actually um, elevate what staff are able to understand and do and then spread that around um, countywide. And then the last example I'll give is lot positive impact is the interest that people have expressed in various of our strategies so for example the virtual speaker, speaker series that you now manage Medina we've gotten interest from people across the country and also outside the country and so we know that that means that um, our message is being um, our message is reaching people uh, outside of the U.S. which is really impressive and then lastly Um, our current work with a Philadelphia-based organization first up, which means that now we are at both ends of the state uh, doing really good work with them around professional development um, for their educators in the Philadelphia region. In terms of um, what I'm most proud of, you know, there are a lot of things to be proud of, but I think that the thing that I'm Um, that came to mind as being something that I'm most proud of is our training model. And the reason for that is because um, we can't force people to accept our entire training model, our entire pride training model, but we do encourage people to um, take it on as part of their training. And the reason that's important is because uh, I believe that there are few early education, training, or professional development services that help people who are in early education understand the history of race and racism in America. So they might talk to teachers about how kids uh, recognize race, things they can do in the classroom, but they don't dig deep into the history, and the history is like critical to what we're trying to help educators understand. The second Um, module in our training model focuses on the history of race and racism in the profession. And that means whichever Mm. profession is represented by the organization that we're working with. So for a group of folks like the Ch- the Children's Museum. We talked about the history of race and racism in museums and in children's museums. In our work with an organization that does mental health services, we talked about the history of racism around mental health and how in the past um, science so-called or pseudoscientists created diseases um, uh, for Black people. And, you know, the thing that I've really found interesting is that early educators um, do not have a grounding in the history of race and racism in early care and education. And it's one of the most eye-opening modules in our training series. So I think that basically the the whole idea of helping them be more grounded in understanding uh, race from a broader perspective so that they're able to make those connections is something that I'm really, really proud of.
1: Amazing. I'm, I'm so glad you shared all of that. I'm like, yes, <laughs> right. I'm proud of those things too. <laughs> like we're doing amazing work out here. Yeah. Um, Jamila, how about you? Oh, um,
2: I'm trying to think <laughs> of something that, um, hmm, I don't know. It's harder or it's different for me though, because like um You know, when you're a teacher, especially if you teach upper grades, you're not going to be able to see the the overall impact that you've made on students. Like that's just the life of a teacher, unfortunately, like the long term. So what you do get or some people in real time that do. um, But then also um, thinking about um, those students who reflect and then come back and tell you like what an impact certain experiences were for them. And um, and it might not even be something that you thought of as being significant, but it really was. The first group of kids or students I taught in um, forever ago, um, we did a project. It was a poetry project. And so this was one of the poems um, that this young woman wrote when she was, I do believe, yeah, 16, it was in 11th grade. So it was a group of kids I taught for 9th, 10th and 11th. And and this was a poem that was a part of a project that I had assigned in a poetry unit in an 11th grade class that I um, taught years ago. And, this actually was something that the student shared with me in 2016, and we all know how 2016 was um, with the whole entire election cycle. And this was, she shared this with me before um, the actual election had taken place, but it was just so prophetic um, that she did share it with me. And I'll also share what she wrote afterwards. so the name, the poem is What America Means to Me, and it is by Ebony Whitaker Smith. When I look at the flag, there are a lot of things I see. I see hope, I see dreams, and I see opportunity. I see some red, I see some white, and I see some blue. Take a look at the flag. You probably see the same thing too. Mr. Flag, when you look at me, tell me, what it is that you see. Can you see the great things, the wonderful things that I can be? I know you can't, and this is a fact. Mr. Flagg, when you look at me, all you see is Black. And she um, wrote this poem, and she said that she considers herself to be a realist. So this was her poem that was in response to the realism movement. Um, so that was a topic that she chose to write about herself. Um, and, um, what she wrote to me, her message was, um, this is September, 2016. Look what I found. I wrote this 20 years ago Hmm. and look at And look what we are talking about. Thanks for giving me the outlet to express myself through writing and providing us with a safe space to channel our revolutionary spirit. Reading this was so therapeutic and sad at the same time. So, yeah, so when I think about impact, I think about, you know, those stories. And and when I am fortunate enough to hear back from students um, about like how impactful the things that we read the movies we watched the discussions that we had and the other types of projects that they engaged in were in, impactful to them um, then and later on
1: I always say you can recognize a great teacher when y'all are Facebook friends with your students yeah. <laughs> your former students right on <laughs> <Yeah. Right. laughs> great. Uh, for this last uh, question here, um, I'm thinking about black futures, and I'm thinking about what Dr. Bettina Love coined as freedom dreaming. Um, and so, in thinking about uh, your work with students and with young people with adults. Um, thinking about race, racism, social justice, uh, liberation. Um, you know, Dr. White, we've talked about uh, building a world of pride. So if you could name kind of what you see in terms of a world of pride, what, what would that look like? What would be kind of your vision for that?
0: Yeah, I don't know. Um, that I could come up with a vision. That's something I'm I'm somewhat weak in, although I can think of things that I would like to see happening um, within communities in the U.S. and beyond. So um, when I think about pride in particular, um, you know, I honestly believe that pride is needed in every state in in the U.S. I believe that there probably are people who are doing uh, culturally responsive work, people who are doing um, things with the arts with young children, but I don't know that there are programs that focus on helping educators with this and parents with this and use the arts. And engage people academically by uh, bringing to them really knowledgeable brilliant speakers who can speak to these issues. um, As well as look at ways to evaluate their work to see that it's actually uh, achieving the goals, and so I think that this whole comprehensive pride model is something that's missing from other places and so in imagining what it might look like, it would actually address the entire U.S. and then maybe be adapted to other places in the world. But in terms of Black people specifically and not necessarily only children and families, you know, what I do hope to see is more connections Um, I was reading an article because I have presented uh, about three different trainings for a bilingual school in Paris. I was reading some articles about Black Paris. And what I'm finding is that there are people in other parts of the world who are using the U.S. as a A resource to learn about how to deal with racial issues, because we have been doing this for so long, and I think that there's a great need for us to connect the dots for us all to be connected. I mean i'm not suggesting pan Africanism, but in a way, I am a way for us as people to connect with each other around the world in ways that help us to be better informed about our conditions to share ideas about how to address. Um, discrimination and oppression wherever we are and whatever it looks like, and ways for us to just sort of build on what people have done and and celebrate also celebrate our blackness together in a way that's kind of connected.
1: Thank you, Dr. White Jamila. How about you when you think about uh, black futures and freedom dreaming and thinking about the context of uh education, young people, race, social justice, what comes to your mind?
2: ooh, so much comes to my mind like um it really does because uh I'm gonna try to figure out the best way to say this, like over the entire arc of my like twenty plus years in um k twelve education um there's been such a decline and the openness and creativity and a drive to connect learning to students in ways that start with the student, that ask students, you know, what they're interested in, what they think their information needs might be, especially as we're talking about older students and building critical thinking skills in the ways that connect to um, that third part of the triangle that Gloria Ladson-Billings talks about that critical consciousness, and it's that critical consciousness that I was always open to because of the way that I was raised in a critically conscious environment. You know, I was raised to to question if something is not just, Um, but that's not what most people want our students to do in K-12 education. And so when you do teach students how to do these things, then you're going to expect that they're going to apply it where they are personally, locally and immediately. And so that's one of the biggest reasons that we don't talk about as to why we don't teach um, students true critical thinking skills across the board, not just in our um, more marginalized um, environments and neighborhoods and schools, but also in more affluent environments. Because it's about teaching the school game and keeping order and control, and not really teaching them how to question and be um, makers of, of of a better future. And so I just am so passionate about how we we need to tap into this resource that we have in our children. It is unconscionable to me that we're not involving them more in the solving of problems that we're dealing with um, on a day-to-day, year-to-year, decade-after-decade basis. And so that's one of the things that that makes me think of. It makes me think of how these big box um, educational um, publishing corporations multinational conglomerates have completely taken over k-12 public education um and then if we couple that with the you know what's happening in the um i guess in, in undergrad with Uh, teacher preparation programs, how we're seeing fewer and fewer people going into the profession. Well, why would you go into the profession if all you're going to be doing is following a, a box curriculum that might even be scripted? You know, is that a reason to go into education, to to study for four or maybe five years to pay all those fees for tests and things like that? No, you want to do it because you really want to engage with students and make a difference in their lives and the lives of all of the people that will come after them, you know, as a result of their existence on this planet. You know, we're affecting so many different generations with the choices that we make on a daily basis. And it's very frightening to me, the current state of what students are um, expected to know and be able to do that being based solely on
1: these um, publications. Yeah, thank you Jamila. Um, some of the things you said reminded me of um... Something I heard someone said where they said that schools are a microcosm of society and that schools are containers. So if we want to see um, liberation mm-hmm. and change, then we need to change the container and change the shape of how we're educating our children. Um, so I want to wrap up with asking, where can folks find you? And is there anything else you'd like to add? And um, if you don't want to be found, no that's no okay. what I, <laughs> no what
2: what I would like to add though, because even though that's frightening, mm-hmm. there's still hope, and there's still hope in that you but you have to be willing to um deal with the pushback that you're going to get if you decide not to uh blindly follow um a prescribed um unit of study that is not. Involving additional questions and supportive materials and experiences that are grounded in your particular student's interests, um, abilities, um, and uh, passions. You know, so it, it you have you can find that balance. You can still make. Um, room for that within something that's prescribed. And that's something that Dr. Goldie Muhammad talks a lot about in her Cultivating Genius book, as well as in all of her um, different um, talk series, is you know, how to do this basically from scratch or with some of the outlines that she's provided. But then also, if you are in a situation where you do have this box curriculum, how can you teach it in a way it's still speaking to the literary histories, you know, or the literacy histories of um, your students that you have in front of you? You know, so there's a way to do it and people have shown the way, but you have to be willing to do it. You have to have that drive um, and be willing and expect the pushback that you're going to get. You know, so you have to have those the, those results and you have to have that buy-in also from students and try to get it from families also, you know, talk to them about what you're trying to do and why you want to do it the way that you are um, so that they know the on the front end, why their student might be studying or reading certain things and how it's going to help them to be, um, better. You know, they always say college career and life ready, but that's how you do it.
1: Thanks Jamila. And Oh, did you want to share any way, any space where people can find you? If oh, not, it's okay.
2: Yeah. Um, people can find me on, um, Instagram, Facebook. I'm just, um, And my email address probably would be the easiest way for people to find me. Um, And that's just my first name backwards at gmail.com. So A-L-L-I-M-A-J. All right.
1: At gmail. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Thank you. And Dr. White, is there anything else you'd like to add and where can people find you?
0: Yeah, as Jamila was talking, I was thinking about the parallels in early education. So she was talking about critical thinking what came to mind for me was the importance of teachers understanding that they can scaffold children's learning, um, particularly about things like race. So there are some strategies that they can use. They might not be higher level, but they, there are ways to take children beyond the way they're thinking, maybe in black and white. And so those same kinds of strategies do apply in early education, Qu- asking children questions allowing children to ask questions. Those things apply to early education as well. So I don't want people to think that they Mm -hmm. are just too advanced for um, young children because they're not. You never know until you try it, right? Um, And then in terms of uh, contacting me, I'm an old fogey. I'm pretty old. So I don't use (laughs) social media that much, even though Jamila keeps telling me over and over again, I should use it. There are so many benefits to using it. So I wouldn't recommend that people try to reach me through Facebook. I hardly ever look at it. Um, But they can reach me through the Pride website. Um, If you send an email, I get a copy of that email. And it's
1: www.racepride.pitt.edu. Wonderful. And on that note, I want to thank the amazing and brilliant Dr. Aisha White and Jamila Rice for joining us today for the In My Skin podcast. It's been really great learning from both of you and hearing your amazing stories and lived experiences. Thank you.
2: Thank Thank you. you. Thank you.
1: Thank you for tuning in to our conversation with Dr. Aisha White and Jamila Rice. I hope your thinking was stimulated and hearts were open around the education, care, and approaches Black children need and benefit from for their healthy development. Sometimes the problem can feel overwhelming and unsurmountable, but there are brilliant folks in this country and world filled with a passion and dedication for our children and communities that understand the challenges and are actively working towards solutions. If you are one of those people, your presence and work is appreciated and we will keep on keeping on. Thanks for listening.